Let's uh, take a moment. Let's pray together. And uh, I want to do pray for what's going on in the Middle East. Let's pray. Lord God, we recognize you are sovereign over all these things that are happening. You see, you also see the evil that is taking place. Lord, we lift up what's going on in Israel. We pray for your merciful hand. We pray for the innocents who are caught in between. Lord God, we come before you and cry out to you, Lord Jesus, that there will be a merciful end to the evil that's going on. We pray for your protection over Israel. It's easier for us here, Lord God, to pray these things. But Lord, you know You know, our, even, our, even our circumstances, Lord. And the enemy is crafty. We'll try to cause division and conflict, not just within ourselves and each other, and, and socially, society, culture, but Lord, also conflict with you. So Lord, that's why we're here. We want to worship you. Sit at your feet, Lord God. Give you our heart and our attention. And Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would move in our lives, speak to us, Lord God, transform us, mold us and shape us, Lord. May you be a presence in our life. We give you this time, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want, to imagine, I want you to imagine a scenario. I want you to imagine... I invite you as my dinner guests, my guest of honor. Now, not everyone all together, right? That would be a little uh, ambitious, but individually, okay? Let's say I invite you to be my dinner guest, my guest of honor, okay? So I invite you in, and I'm going to make a, a great meal, right? Make these like, great porterhouse steaks or or roast, or whatever your meat of choice, whatever it may be, like a, a nice roasted chicken or something like that. If you're a vegetarian, maybe like a cauliflower steak, or whatever you vegetarian, your veg- vegetarians enjoy eating, right? Imagine that I make this wonderful meal, and we sit at the table, and I cut up the meats, and you know when you, you make meats, there's like the choicest pieces, right? The most flavorful parts of the meats, that has the most spices and the flavor. I cut it all up, and you can see the choice pieces, and then you, you know what are the scraps, the less desirable ones, right? I cut it up, I plate it, and I give myself the choicest meats, and I give you the scraps. What would go on in your mind? What would you think about? Or what if I invited you over, I make this wonderful meal, you walk in the door and the smell, oh, freshly cooked meal, it smells wonderful. And it's time to sit at the dinner table and I get the freshly cooked meal. But I give myself the freshly cooked meal and I give you the three-day leftovers that I had the night before. 
What would cross your mind? What would you be thinking? Or what if I invited you, I welcomed you in, but I didn't really give the sense that you're very welcome. I go to the door, you ring the doorbell, you knock on the door, I open the door, and you say, hey, Pastor Mike. And I'm like, you showed up. I guess I need to invite you in. Come on in. I guess you want to sit down too. Here, have a seat. I'll be right back. Yeah, I get your seat in the living room. I go into the other room, and I'm like, all right, how long do I need to have them stay? I go in the other room and wait. And then maybe it's time to eat. I get you in. We sit down, and, and you start talking, and you sharing, and then you look at me, and I'm like, you know what? Tomorrow, tomorrow's a school night, and it's getting kind of late. Do you think maybe, you know, it's getting, you know, maybe it can get going? And I ask you to leave. How would that sound? That wouldn't be very enjoyable, right? I imagine, and I wouldn't do that, right? I imagine none of you would do that either, right? I would assume. In fact, usually when we have guests, we tend to go out of our way to make them feel accepted, right? To please them. We tend to bend over backwards to please people, to make them feel good, to make them feel welcome, make them feel comfortable, to give them pleasure, right? I wonder how much of that desire for us to please other people translates to our desire for the Lord. Do we have that same desire to want to please God the same way we want to please other people? Do we have and share that same conviction? Do we save our best for God or do we say, you know, God, I got some scraps here. I'll give you this. But you know what? I got some important things to do. I'll get to you a little bit later. Do we even think about what do I have to offer the Lord? As we move on in Genesis, and we are actually moving on, we are in chapter 4. And we're going to look at a very familiar story. Even if you don't know Scripture, you've probably heard the story of Cain and Abel. Right? So we're going to look at a very familiar story. And there are going to be two aspects of the story we're going to take a look at this week and next week. But first, let's look at the story, what takes place. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 4, starting at verse 1. It goes like this. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother, Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. 
Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Verse 8, And Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother? Or where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, thou hast driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from thy face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And it will come about that whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So here's a scenario. We shift the focus from husband and wife, right? Adam and Eve. And the focus goes to these two brothers, their sons, Cain and Abel. And so this is the first family that we are introduced in Scripture. But it's interesting, for the first family, we're not given a whole lot of details of the family dynamics, right? All we know is Cain here, we have these two brothers. Cain is what's a farmer, He's a tiller of the ground, right? He's doing like his father, his father's work, his father's business. So he's like the farmer, the worker of the ground. But his younger brother, Abel, he is a shepherd. He takes care of the flock, right? It's interesting to me that Cain was the older son, but Abel's job was described first. I just find that interesting, a little bit of an observation. Why is that interesting to me? Well, you'd notice that, you know, in culture and tradition, the older son tends to get the greater honor, right? The older son does. And we'll see that tradition as we go through Scripture. But what's interesting is that as we go in, the, especially the early history in Scripture, on repeated times, the older son doesn't end up getting or receiving the greater honor. We'll look at that as we go through Genesis so to me, it's just kind of interesting that here we're introduced to Cain and Abel, yet we, we are introduced to Abel's job first and then Cain later. Hebrew listeners, as they're reading and hearing the scripture, they recognize the role of the older son and the younger son, right? But despite this, whatever this, if that's no significance, whatever, Cain seems to be the focus in chapter 4. And we're given some, a glimpse of insight into their relationship with the Lord. 
I find it interesting that despite Adam and Eve's disobedience, they're not completely disconnected from God. They're not disconnected with fellowship from God, right? We see that, in fact, it seems as though they still have an in-person encounter with the Lord. We remember in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they heard, the voice, they heard the sounds of the Lord walking in the garden, right? We see here that when they presented offerings, the Lord regarded or saw one and not the other. We can also uh, imply, in fact, that when Cain's response to his punishment that we just read, it seems that Cain is under the impression that he would no longer be in the presence or in the visible presence of God, right? And so he would have to be wandering. He'd have to be away from the presence of God. And some may think, well, how can this be that they can have a physical encounter, a visible encounter with the Lord? How can that happen? Well, there's some theological terms called one, a theophany. How many have heard that phrase, theophany? A theophany is a visible, physical manifestation of God, right, in some, some form, right? A theophany, the presence of God being evident, right? It's not just a, you know, you, you, you know he exists somewhere. A Christophany is specifically a physical or visible manifestation of, what do you think? Christ, right? A Christophany. Right, so the Christ had appeared. And for us, for Christians, we would say that is who? Jesus, right? So if you were to read into the Old Testament, if you think of something as a Christophany, it would be the presentation, the manifestation of Jesus' presence there. So if you think about, well, how could God have a physical, how can man, either it's Adam and Eve or Cain and Abel, have an in-person encounter with God, you look at this and say, well, there must be some precedence for our understanding of the Son of God coming down in human form. Right? I believe, my personal belief, that this is more of a Christophany, that they were had a visible, physical encounter with the Lord. So we have this, represent, this relationship with God is that Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, were not completely disconnected from God, even though they're banished from the garden, but they still had this relationship with God in some form. Right? They were able to interact with God. And we see a part of this relationship is that both brothers present offerings to the Lord. Now, this is the first mention specifically of an offering given to the Lord. But we don't know a lot of details about this, right? We don't know how long they've been doing this. We don't know why they were doing this, right? We don't know the purpose of the offering, whether it's a Thanksgiving offering, a sin offering, a, a praise, or whatever it is. We don't really know the details of it. All we know is that they were presenting offerings to the Lord, Right? So how does this end up? How does this go? What's the conflict? Well, the conflict in this story, there is no conniving serpent here in this story, right? In the previous chapter, we had this serpent, though conniving, causing doubt, causing them to question God. We don't have a conniving serpent in this round. There's no antagonist in this, in this story other than the self. 
Verse 3, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, and Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. So Cain brings some fruit and veggies as an offering. I don't know what it was that he brought, right? Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, I don't know if you go to, you know, if you go to a restaurant, can you imagine you order a meal and the waiter, the server brings out the food and they bring out this nice looking salad. But then they bring out the steak. I don't know about you, but any appeal to that salad gets, all right, let me go to the steak. I'll eat my salad afterwards, right? I don't know if that was the effect. I'm not saying that God prefers like meat over the veggies, right? I'm not saying that's the case. I like to justify this in saying that meat is better than the veggies, but I don't think that's the point of this conflict. Both of them give from their respective work. Cain was a farmer, Abel was a shepherd. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his, for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Now in the story, in this particular passage, we're not given clear reasons why God regarded Abel's offering over Cain's. Many have guessed Many guess them and and based on some assumptions. And we're going to look at later what some New Testament writers comment about this story. But I think there are three possible reasons for Cain's offering not being regarded by the Lord. The first possibility, bad offering, right? Was there something wrong with the offering that Cain gave to the Lord? Second possibility, bad Cain, right? Offering was fine, but there was something wrong with Cain. And I think the third possibility, that perhaps it's a combination of both, right? There's no clear indication, at least from the story at first reading, that his sacrifice, Cain's sacrifice, was less valuable because it wasn't an animal, right? A lot of people may assume that, come to that conclusion, but we don't have a clear indication that it was because Abel provided an animal and Cain provided some fruits and vegetables, right? We don't have that clear, it's not as obviously stated. But a detail about Abel's offering may provide some insight about the difference between the two offerings. In verse 4, Abel, on his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. In other words, Abel took from the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. That word, the fat portions, can imply the fat, fatty parts of it, but also the choicest parts of it. Right? If you're a meat connoisseur and you're shopping for some meat, you want a little bit of fattiness in it, right? Got the juices, right? Going. I know, I'm getting hungry too. Even when I was preparing this message, I was getting hungry. All right? So steakhouse afterwards? No. Okay. <laughs> After this message, you're not going to want to go to a soup plantation or whatever, right? 
I know, I got you all hungry now, right? But what it was saying, what it's implying, is that what Abel offered up to the Lord was the best. The choices. He held nothing back from the Lord, or to the Lord. And the Israelites who are reading this, hearing this, they would recognize the significance of the fatty portions. Because in the sacrificial system, the fat portions was given unto God. It was the Lord's, right? Contrast with Cain, we're not given the same details about Cain's sacrifice. All we're told is that he gave from the fruit of the ground, right? So you may imply, perhaps Abel did not give of the best, don't fully know. But for whatever reason, the Lord regarded Abel's offerings over Cain's. That word regard means to look at. Okay, to look at, to see, to gaze about, to behold. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. It's interesting. I wonder, reading this, I, I had this thought. I wonder if adults today would read this story and think, you know, God is being a very bad parent. Here's these two sons provide offerings, and God regarded one but did not regard the other. Isn't that bad parenting? Shouldn't God have at least just affirmed Cain? Shouldn't have God just said, you know what, Cain, it was the thought that counts, right? And don't we tend to think that way with the Lord? God, isn't it just the thought that counts? How many of us have said that before to God, right? Or you hoped. But if we're being honest with ourselves, we really don't want God to have that attitude towards us. Well, at least it's the thought that counts. Because I don't know about you, but for me, I have my moments of saying, you know what, God? I'm a little busy. I'll spend some time later. Or you know what, God? Ah, you know, I'll do what I can. I'll do my best. I don't know if we really want God to just judge us or determine things by our thoughts and intentions. Because I think our thoughts and intentions can certainly betray us, right? How many times do we think, I'll only give God this much, but I'm saving my best for myself? Well, based on God's response to Cain, I think we could surmise that Cain did not do well in his offering to the Lord. In giving his offering, he didn't do the right thing. Yet God still presents Cain a chance, an opportunity to make things right, to make the right decision. And here, I think, is the key verses in this chapter, the key verses in today's passage. Verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? 
And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Verses six and seven, key verses here in this story. As I mentioned in the beginning, we'll focus on two aspects. This week, we're gonna look at our offering to the Lord. Next week, we're gonna look at what is waiting at our door, okay? But I want us to key on, once again, we see the Lord's kindness and mercy. How do I, why do I say that? God warns Cain that he's able to make things right. He warns him, like, you know what? You can do well. This word, to do well, means to make glad, rejoice, to do good to, to deal well with, to make a thing good or right. He's telling him, don't you know, if you do well, if you respond well, your countenance will be lifted. But if you do not do well, sin is waiting at the door, lying at the door, and you must master it. See, God does not leave Cain to stew in his anger. He doesn't leave Cain to stew in his bitterness or his feeling of dejection. How many of us can relate to that? How many times have we done something wrong and we sense the Holy Spirit speak to us? If you just do what is right, you'll feel better. How many of us, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of us can relate to that? Isn't it amazing how God works with us as opposed to how we work with other people? Right? If someone wrongs us, we feel, we we almost feel no guilt in letting them stew in their guilt, in their shame, in their rejection. Sometimes we can say, you know what, I hope you feel bad. (laughs) You should feel guilty. You should feel ashamed. I don't know, parents, we've, maybe we've done this before with our kids. They did something wrong, and we say, you know what? I'm going to let you think about what you've done. You stay in your room, and you think about what you've done. And we walk out, we close the door, and we never revisit it. We just let them sit in their guilt, in their shame. And we want them to know about it. Maybe not your kids, maybe it's somebody else. But see, in God's mercy and kindness, he approaches Cain just like he did with Adam and Eve. He confronts him. And when God confronts Cain, it wasn't to humiliate him or to chastise him. But rather, God speaks to Cain to what? To restore him. Whatever Cain did not do, it wasn't beyond correction and making it right. God did not ask Cain, why are you angry? Because he didn't know, right? He didn't ask him why his countenance fell because it was a surprise to him. And I think this indicates Cain's response was more about him than it was about what he offered to God or God's response to him. 
God warns Cain, if you do not do well, sin is crouching or lying at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. God did not reject Cain as if he couldn't be good enough or incapable of doing what is right. Right? You catch that with God's response? He didn't reject Cain as if he couldn't be good enough or he couldn't have done what was right. I've heard this, many kids feel this way. When they do something wrong, most kids can handle their parents being upset with them. What they, is hard for them to handle is what? When their parents say, I'm disappointed in you. I didn't realize that until I heard that. Kids are more affected, children are more affected when they hear, I am disappointed in you. That seems to strike a little harder. And I think for any of us, that doesn't fade away as we get older. How many adults work their lives for their parents' approval? Right? We have that. But this is not God's message to Cain. Notice the emphasis in the story is not even the standard of the offering. We don't even know that in the story, right? We don't know that detail. The emphasis is not placed on what the expectations were of Cain and Abel. We don't have that detail either. The emphasis was on Cain's response to the Lord's correction. Verse 8. And Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. We'll focus on this more next week. But I mentioned New Testament writers commenting on the story. Two passages here. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, the Apostle John writes, For this is the message which we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Hebrews 11.4 By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. See, Cain and Abel at this point become a representation between evil and righteousness and faith, Right? Abel's offering was a righteous offering. Cain's deeds were evil. And I think what happens is the situation revealed the hearts of these two brothers. And I think that's often the case. Our circumstances often reveal the contents of our hearts, don't they? That's why I I believe one of the reasons why God allows difficult, trying 
circumstances to, that for us to experience, why he allows it, I think often it reveals the content of our hearts, doesn't it? When difficult times come, our anger starts to boil, our resentment starts to grow, all these kind of things, they reveal the things that are in our hearts. And I think in God's mercy, he says, look, this is what is here. This is what's going on inside you. But I love what God does. God presents Cain a warning. He says, what's his warning? Do well. And your countenance will be lifted up. You will feel better if you just do what is right. And isn't this often true with us? We are most unhappy most of the time when we are doing what is not pleasing to God. And usually, oftentimes, we know it. We're unhappy when we're not doing, we're not walking with the Lord as we ought to. No matter what circumstance, we may be having a lot of fun, but in the quietness of our, when we're in our rooms, we're all alone and all that fun is gone, we're sitting there, if we're honest, we're probably not real happy. On the contrary, maybe you could relate to this. Your circumstances are not pleasant. You're going through difficult times, but when you're doing what is right before the Lord, you somehow can feel good in the midst of your circumstances. Because at least you know I'm doing what God is asking me to do. I am where the Lord needs me to be. So no matter what the circumstances are, God, I just want to be pleasing to you. Right? The problem with Cain was not as much an offering issue as it was a heart issue. I'm not saying there, was something wrong with, there wasn't something wrong with Cain's offering. Perhaps there was. I'm not saying there wasn't, uh, there, there wasn't a reason why God had, didn't have a good reason why not to regard his offering. There was. But I think it's a less issue about the offering as it was about Cain's heart, his response. After God confronted him, he had an opportunity to make things right. Otherwise, why would God even say, Cain, don't you know? If you do well, your countenance will be lifted. Why would he even warn Cain if Cain was not able to make things right? Instead, Cain's response, he allowed sin and evil to master him. Again, we'll look at that, focus on that next week. And we'll see next week that not only did he sin against his brother, but he sinned against the Lord, more importantly. So what do we glean from this story thought a lot about the story, the situation, and the story's relevance to us. And this question came to mind, and, you know, it's convicting, convicting to me. And the question is, why do we expect God to be pleased with whatever we do? Why do we expect God to just be pleased with whatever we do? Why do we expect God to be pleased with minimal effort? Why do we do that? 
Don't we? We want God to just give us participation trophies. If you have kids, they went through sports, that became a thing, participation trophies. You showed up. You are part of the roster. You get a trophy. We have this mentality that we want God to treat us just like that. That what's, all we need to do is just show up. If we just show up, give minimal efforts, we deserve the trophy. Why do we expect God to just be okay with minimal effort? What do I have to offer? It's not a question about a degree of talent when I ask that. It's not a dollar amount. That's not what the point of that question is. What is the condition of my heart as I present an offering to the Lord? Do I give with desire to honor the Lord as much, if not more, than that desire to please myself or to please others, to please my boss, to please my parents, to please my friends, to please the world? Do I have that same desire when I give something to God? I love this verse in Psalm 51. David writes, For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I will give it. Thou art not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God. Thou will not despise. What's David expressing here? Offerings and sacrifices are just acts. If our hearts are not humble before God when we give it to him. The offerings, the sacrifices, all those things, those are just things. Those are just acts, behaviors. What's in our hearts when we give to the Lord? The Lord is pleased with a contrite heart, a heart that's willing to admit their sin, to willing to confess their sin and to want to repent and be pleasing to God. That's God's desire for us. That's his desire for us. When we come to church, do we want God to just be happy that we showed up? Hey God, give me some credit. I woke up at 10 o'clock. Service is in an hour, but I got up. Or if we're, on the, we're coming early, service, worship team, or set up, whatever, Lord, I woke up at 7 on a Sunday when I don't have to work. God should be pretty pleased with me. God, I, I sang, I preached, I taught, I set up, I did all these things. You should be happy with me, right? But what's our hearts? What's our heart? Are we just satisfied with saying, God, I, just, I set some time aside on a Sunday. Look at my schedule. Look at my kids' schedule. 
Look at how much we work, how much hours I put in. Look at what all the activities I filled my family to do. God, I gave you an hour. I'm putting myself in this situation. You understand that, right? This is convicting. What I'm getting at is that what is our heart as we give to the Lord? It may not lead us to kill our sibling. Again, we'll get to that next week. So in the meantime, don't kill your siblings yet, all right? Hold up. But do we really consider our hearts? But here's what I want to encourage us with. Even when we fall short in our offerings... I love what the Lord said to Cain. It resonates me. If you do well, don't you know your countenance will be lifted? That's so meaningful to me because none of us are going to be perfect in this, right? None of us are perfect, right? In our offering. There are Sundays when we may show up and we're not feeling it that Sunday. We want to be in and out. We just want to get this done. This was a work week. It was hell. We're not going to be perfect all the time, especially at home, right? In the car rides home, when the family, when it's all laid down, right? You know, we did our best Sunday best. We went to home and like, all right, now we can relax. (laughs) Now we can let loose about how we really feel. But those words resonate. When the Lord says, why are you angry? Why is your countenance falling? Don't you know, if you just do well, your countenance will be lifted. I want to encourage us as a church. God gives us the opportunity to make things right, how we respond. This is relatable to us in our own lives. We're not perfect in doing our best for the Lord. We're not perfect in pleasing the, being pleasing to the Lord in everything we do. And in God's mercy and his kindness and his goodness, he gives us the opportunity to make things right, ask for forgiveness and say, oh Lord, I realize, man, I blew it that moment. I messed up. My spouse got angry. I got angry. And I didn't kill them, but I wanted to, but I didn't kill them but I hurt them. I hurt them. God gives us the opportunity to make things right. Lord, I'm sorry. I sinned against this person. I sinned against you. And I know the next time if I can just do what is right. And you can apply that whatever it is, whether it's your siblings, whether it's your workplace, whatever it is. But I want to encourage you to end with this. As a church, when we come together, can we say, Lord, I want to give you my best. I'm not talking about the best talents. I'm not talking about like you got to be like Tomlin or Phil Wilkin or whatever it is up here. I don't try to be the best like preacher you've ever heard. But say, God, I don't want to hold back from you. I don't want to be content with just giving you scraps. I want to give you what you deserve, your honor.
What a blessing that would be if we enter that daily, but also when we come to bring our offering up to the Lord. Amen? Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, your mercy, your kindness, your patience, your forgiveness is overwhelming. Your grace, of course, is undeserving. We are not deserving of your mercy and your grace. But Lord, I pray that you would instill in our hearts a desire to, we want to please you. We want to honor you with our life. We don't want to just give you the scraps of our life, but Lord, we want to give you what you deserve. And Lord, I know that your spirit would speak to us and give us discernment of what that is, what that means. And it may mean something different from, all, from each of us, but Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to us and we would humble ourselves humble ourselves to say, Lord, I hear you and I want to do what's right. Thank you for your mercies and your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's worship together.